0: Welcome to the PAXX Podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts and sponsored by Jetliner Cabin's eBook app. This is episode 61 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing?
1: Doing well, Mary. You know, we talk about service animals and emotional support animals in flight Yeah. Well, my emotional support animal arrived the other day. It's a tiny stray kitten that started living under the bench on my front porch. This thing is so cute that I don't think anybody would object to me bringing it along.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful, Max. I love kittens and cats, so I suspect this is going to be a new member of your family then, yes?
1: We'll see. I'm not really well situated for a cat right now so i may bring it to a shelter because uh, this is malnourished it needs some shot, uh, it needs its shots and it needs to be fed properly and all that but meantime i'm uh, keeping it happy with uh, some tuna fish
0: <laughs> well very good for you well max you know um it's interesting times right now and and you know I, we're in a somewhat strange climate, I think you might agree, Um, concerning times, especially for for many people of color and for women. And it really does feel like we're in the divided states of America right now. (laughs) Yes. And I kind of personally find myself asking yet again, what can aviation do specifically to fix gender and race inequality in our own deer industry and perhaps more broadly in the world? And It's not unprecedented for airlines in the Western world to take a stand on social issues, even as lawmakers drag their feet. And we actually have some recent examples. So in years past, many major airlines became proponents of the lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans communities and were vocal supporters of gay marriage in order to become employers of choice for the LGBT community. And more recently, a number of major corporations, including some airlines, pulled partnerships with the NRA following the horrific mass shooting of students in Parkland, Florida. So in my opinion, airlines and the industry as a whole kind of has an opportunity to spearhead positive change right now. By ensuring women and people of color have a seat at the table, including at the decision-making level. Because the fact of the matter is, as we're talking about PAXX, MAX, the passenger experience has been overwhelmingly colored by the white male experience and mm-hmm. perspective. And in my personal opinion, that's got to change. So I hope we get a chance to touch on this topic a bit when we dive into our discussion today. But before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabin's eBook app for sponsoring this week's podcast Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit jetlinercabins.com to learn more and to download the app.
1: Very good. Well, Mary, let's take a look at some of the Paxx news stories, making headlines. First, President Trump has signed the FAA reauthorization legislation. Now, that extends the FAA funding for another five years, which is good. We're kind of tired of these continuing resolutions (laughs) short term. But it also instructs the agency to do some interesting things, including regulating aircraft seat size. Now, Section 577 of the Act says not later than one year after the date of enactment and after providing notice and an opportunity for comment, the administrator of the FAA shall issue regulations that establish minimum dimensions for passenger seats on aircraft operated by air carriers in interstate and intrastate air transportation, including, and here it is, minimums for seat pitch, width, and length, and those that are necessary for the safety of passengers. So, Mary, we discussed this topic a lot in prior episodes as this legislation moved through Congress, but now it's a law. So what do we expect from airlines and passengers?
0: My goodness, so much to unpack here, Max, and you're right, we've talked about this for years, and here it is. Yes. Um, I, 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 my first instinct is to temper expectations a little bit, um, because the Federal Aviation Administra- Administration only very recently fought the notion that current aircraft seat layouts are unsafe, uh, saying plainly that even if seats are relatively narrow and close together, egress is not affected and passengers will be able to evacuate in a timely fashion. So this is the type of rationale that has led the FAA to certify high-density seating layouts for many years. So purely for instance, because there's a lot of offenders out there, um, this is simply for instance, but budget carriers such as Spirit Airlines and Frontier, they're able to offer seats pitched at 28 inches, which is tight. And on the seat width front, we've seen high-density long-haul wide bodies, including, of course, the 10 777, 9-abreast 787, that have passed certification with relative ease, even though seat widths come in at roughly 17 inches uh, and even have dipped below that on certain airlines uh, 7 So it's kind of difficult for me to see how the FAA would be incentivized to set seat size minimums that are more comfortable – then the layouts that the agency has already reproved, because effectively doing so would be akin to admitting that it shouldn't have approved the tighter density layouts in the first place, and in some respects could be seen as an admission of wrongdoing, so there's that. <laughs> yes. But beyond that, you know, the Boeing 737, which as you know is a workhorse in the U.S. and across the world, has 17-inch wide seats per the limitations of that tube. So is the FAA really going to demand that seat width be 18 inches, which is where the Airbus A320 is able to accommodate, but not the USA's competing aircraft's the 737, do, reg- do regulators really want a line drawn in the sand that would prevent Boeing from selling the 737?
1: Sure.
0: Um, so I, I don't know. I don't want to diminish people's hopes here, but we might, might, might have to contend with minimum set at roughly 17-inch width for seats and perhaps 28-inch pitch. Um, to be fair, this would stop industry from going further. It stops the problem of incredible shrinking seats. It stops U.S. airlines from adopting 27-inch seat pitch seats. Um, which is something they've considered, but will it make the current situation more comfortable for passengers? And I guess that's my concern, that passengers are going to get their hope based on all the news reports saying that regulation is coming only for the FAA to set the standards at the tightest kind of unspoken minimums that it has already approved to date. What do you think? I'd like to be completely wrong on this. on As many things, I want to be wrong here that that's not going to be the situation, but...
1: Well, I assume this is going to follow the process that the FAA, uh, in almost all cases, employs for creating new regulations, which is that the FAA does not just create a regulation and issue it. There's a process, the NPRM, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. And so what that does, of course, is solicit input and comments from the public. And that has in the past significantly influenced how the FAA has responded to certain issues and we don't know what the response uh, from an NPRM or what the input from an NPRM uh, from the public will look like uh, it is kind of an interesting aspect of this so yeah that's another reason why it's not necessarily a done deal uh, in terms of uh, putting forth new regulations
0: yeah that's a great point and of course in the when the FAA was uh you know, forced to make comment about this because Flyers Rights, who we've interviewed on this show, the consumer advocacy group that has been pushing for these seat standards, um, you know, they had to respond to Flyers Rights by court order and explain, you know, why they hadn't set these standards already. You know, the FAA put forth these videos that were um, courtesy of industry. It wasn't even the FAA's own videos. They they showed videos from Airbus and Embraer and Boeing showing evacuations of aircraft. That were in no way uh, representative of true uh, evacuations of aircraft. It was all rather staged, and you know, with volunteers and nobody grabbing their bags. And 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 it was so effectively the evidence that the FAA has used to to underscore the reason why it hasn't set standards is questionable in many respects. Um, I think it would be fair to say I certainly think that the flyers' rights and other consumer advocacy groups will be pointing that out in the rulemaking process, that there's questions about the actual evidence um, that FAA has used to say that uh, these seat layouts are safe. Um, But one interesting thing, when I attended the recent Apex Expo and co-located Aircraft Interiors Expo in Boston recently, I had some good conversations with stakeholders, and some of them suggested, rather off record, that airlines are kind of content for passengers of size, passengers of reduced mobility to simply not fly. So if Mm. you don't fit in a tiny seat or in the tiny labs, too bad for you, it's not their problem. And I was kind of, it was, on the one hand, it was shocking to hear it said out loud, and on the other hand, it was kind of refreshing to hear at least some honesty from some of these stakeholders and this kind of takes us back to my earlier point about the passenger experience being colored by the white male viewpoint so are the decision makers that you know won't took us down this path of these ultra high density layouts thinking about the parents that need to navigate those seats when they have children the parents that need to navigate tiny lavatories to change a two-year-old's diaper Um, do they think about how difficult that is in a tiny lav you know, even with the changing tables. When airlines opted for high-density layouts, did it even occur to executives that we might see an increase in sexual assault of women in flight? So, the Points guy uh, reported this summer that sexual assaults in flights are on the rise based on FBI data. And in-flight assaults are probably much higher than what have been reported. So, the data that they have, you know, they expect it actually is far higher, which given our current climate Uh, comes as zero surprise whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. I think we desperately need women to influence some of the decisions being made. And it worries me that, you know, corporations haven't done enough of that and that now we're kind of starting to see some of the the fallout because of that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Max, about bringing more women to the table to make decisions about the passenger experience?
1: Oh, I think we definitely need more diversity of several types, when yeah. it comes to the decisions that are that are being made, also though people need to speak up and continue to speak up. There was a recent article uh, by Christopher Elliott where he was reporting on a survey or a study rather that was done that concluded that there is no relationship between the quality of customer service and airline profits. In other words. Uh, if you uh, annoy a lot of people if you provide uh, poor service it doesn't really get reflected in people's habits they still buy the tickets and they still fly, fly the plane so people right. people need to speak up i think and and you know bring these issues up
0: Yeah, make your voices heard. I mean, you know, certainly after the United dragging incident, uh, passengers made their voices heard and changes, you know, uh, came about because of that. Um, So I agree. It's super important. one area, kind of ironically enough, where I think the white male influence <laughs> might ultimately mean a safer situation for women um, is in business class. So kind of nearly a decade ago during the Paris Air Show, um, Sigma, which is now known as Zodiac, uh, revealed its Cirrus reverse herringbone seat and that it would launch with U.S. Airways. And I actually was the first to report on this seat for Flight Global at the time. And since that's time, we've seen kind of many copycat seats. Um, offering this more private living space for business class with direct aisle access. And while I personally bemoan the sort of coffin feel of these types of seats, Max, as I've done in the past, um, it kind of also stands to reason that a more private experience will mean a safer situation for women. And that is meaningful for women that are concerned about these things right now. Um, And that but that was driven by very much so by frequent flyer corporate flyers, uh, largely male um, pressure for these more private enclosures and more private suites. Um, Of course, it doesn't protect women down back particularly in these high-density layouts, and I circle back again to, you know, the rise in um, in-flight sexual assaults, that's something that is, you know, we really need to be paying attention to. And is there any sort of correlation between the layouts and the rise in assaults? It's something that Flyers' Rights has, in fact, brought up in the past. And candidly, when they first mentioned it, I thought, ah, oh, is that Legit and now I'm starting to wonder um, if there is some validity to this i don't know I hope it's something that regulators um, look at and and study as well on top of everything else that's kind of going on I think I think it would be important um, something that does worry me i don 't know if you ever notice this but sometimes corporations overall i'm not going to necessarily pinpoint airlines but when corporations Higher top women to like C-level positions, sometimes it's right in advance of like making some really tough decisions for the company, like cost reductions and layoffs, layoffs hmm. and changes to customer experience. I don't know if you've ever noticed that where oftentimes a woman is named to a high level position and then suddenly bad news comes. And it's almost yeah. like, it's almost like sometimes I don't know, you know, I wonder if if corporations try to put a female face on some of the tough decisions to soften the blow. I don't know. Hmm. I want to. It's something I'm going to pay attention to as airlines, uh, you know, move to hire more women. And I, I don't know. I, I, I'm paying a lot closer attention, shall we say, these days, given our current climate. Sure. Max.
1: Yeah, I haven't noticed that, but I did want to mention that there's a, a new book out. It's a, a New York Times bestseller. I don't know if you've seen this, Mary. It's called Fly Girls and the subtitle is How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History— and it's the true story of a number of women flyers from the 20s and 30s, who, uh, some of whom you will have heard of, like Amelia Earhart, but others that really were pioneering women aviators, like Ruth Nichols. Have you ever heard of Ruth Nichols? I have not. No, or Louise Thadden, people like this. And uh, as uh, I, I read the book, You know, I I had two very strong reactions. One was, boy, have we come a long way uh, (laughs) in terms of how women uh, are viewed. But at the same time, there are a lot of issues that came up back in the 20s and 30s that really sound like today's issues as well. And it was kind of surprising that we still have quite a ways to go. But I uh, highly recommend the book. Actually, we interviewed the author, Keith O'Brien, on episode 523 of Airplane Geeks, so if you're interested in that. But otherwise, uh, recommend the book highly. At one point in time, uh, the big milestone was uh, a, a woman flying across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this was when it was fairly difficult for anyone to fly across the Atlantic But the big milestone in the thing uh, that—one of the things that Amelia Earhart was known for was uh, being one of the first—I think the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, except that she didn't fly the airplane. She was a passenger, but she was hailed as, you know, uh, for this remarkable achievement of being a woman who could even get across the Atlantic in an airplane and uh, you know it it goes from there so uh, things have changed a lot but uh, things some things are, have not changed very much
0: that is fascinating. Sometimes it feels like we're one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. Max, I'm going to have to check this out. Um, I I recently watched the documentary RBG about uh, uh, notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh yes, yes, and and similar points on a broader scale were made about how it wasn't that very long ago uh, that women had far fewer rights than they do today, and that sometimes we also have to keep some of that in perspective. And 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 Ruth Bader. Ginsburg saw changes happening, uh, changes being important, but it happening step by step. But I, as you can imagine, many of us women out there, and of course, uh, people of color are, uh, as well, are growing a little bit frustrated by the pace of those steps sometimes. Yes, and so yes. uh, I think that's definitely something that, that's happening in society right now.
1: Well, we wanted to mention that this FAA reauthorization bill actually includes a number of other provisions that are relevant to passengers, including instructing the Secretary of Transportation to create an Airline Passengers with Disabilities Bill of Rights. Now, Mary, I know you've heard from some disabled passengers on social media. They're eager to understand what this law means for them. What do you think uh, the promise of this legislation is?
0: Yeah, so just to break it down for our listeners, so U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin worked to include a number of key measures from her Air Carrier Access Amendments Act in the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018. And some of the key reforms include increasing civil penalties for bodily harm to a passenger with a disability and damage to wheelchairs are other mobility aids, require a DOT review and, if necessary, revise regulations ensuring passengers with disabilities receive dignified, timely, and effective assistance at airport and on aircraft. Create an advisory committee on the air travel needs of passengers with disabilities and require that committee to review airline practices for ticketing, pre-flight seat assignments and stowing of assistive devices. Mandate the DOT to develop an airline passengers with disability bill of rights, as you mentioned, and that would be done in consultation with stakeholders. And very importantly, study in-cabin wheelchair restraint systems in coordination with disability advocates, airlines and aircraft manufacturers. Now, Max, the wheelchair restraint issue particularly is actually a rather contentious one as i learned in recent months and i'm actually kind of somewhat saddened to tell you that in my talks with interior specialists and some long-time industry veterans they haven't always actually been very positive of this idea of allowing people to stay in their own wheelchairs and wheel them into the cabin mm. and uh there seems to be an unwillingness by at least a certain faction of the industry to accommodate uh, people in this fashion. And I got to say, to be honest, I think a lot of the wil- unwillingness is because the most sensible place to put wheelchairs is arguably the entryway of the aircraft and ergo in premium class cabins. Ah. And it's an issue that people don't want to admit or discuss out loud. But it's something that I think we need to start talking about, um, about this notion that, hey, find another place for disabled passengers or passengers that are – some of this mobility equipment is is large, Max. Sure, some of it sure. is cumbersome. Some of it is complicated. Um, and, and, and ensuring that a passenger with a disability is treated with dignity is essential. But I'm hopeful that this faction within the industry that – do not want these passengers in first class and premium classes will have a rethink. So um, someone told me recently as an excuse for why we can't do, do all of this, we can't have restraints for wheelchairs and cabins, is, oh, we can't guarantee that a disabled passenger's head will be safe if they're in their own wheelchair and they're in a survivable accident. So effectively, we can't guarantee HIC compliance. But I would remind these individuals that the FAA doesn't guarantee safety for children under two. So it allows passengers to fly without a proper restraint for their babies under two years old. And the FAA doesn't even test seats outside the 95th percentile male, which is roughly 223 pounds. So we don't even know uh, (laughs) how a large uh, body is going to fare in the event of a survivable accident um, above 223 pounds. We already don't know that. So if you're going to say that everyone needs to be safe and that the reason to exclude uh, disabled passengers from using their mobility devices in the cab, you know, from, from being restrained, straining those devices in the cabin and allowing them in the cabin... Is because of safety. It seems kind of strange to throw up certification certification barriers when we make so many other exceptions, you know, um, and so many so many other exceptions are made. Whether it's children under two or people that are outside that ninety fifth percentile male anthropomorphic dummy. So I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of excuses out there, and um, I it will be fascinating to see how everything plays out. But, of course, Max, the uh, disability aspect of this bill is profound. They're really making a serious effort, and and it's edifying. Another part of the bill that I actually kind of wanted to ask you about is that it will ban in-flight voice calls. And also, of course, and we've talked about this in the past, the privatization of ATC uh, also not going to happen per this bill. Um, What are your thoughts here on on these other provisions um, in the bill?
1: This really is a fairly consumer-friendly piece of legislation, I think, and uh, banning e-cigarettes, uh, that's that's great. Uh, banning mobile phone calls, voice calls during flight, I think that's wonderful. Uh, we're assaulted by loud people on their phones uh, throughout the, the regular course of the day, but to uh, be sitting next to somebody who's shouting into their phone to try to be heard over the uh, the the cabin noise uh, it's it's just too much so I'm I'm really happy to see that um, I think that partly it's reaction to consumer complaints and consumer thoughts about uh, voice calls on uh, on flights uh, I I think it's it's wonderful I mean I think we we'll, we'll look back on that the way we now look back on Uh, When uh, smoking was allowed in the cabin, you know, we don't, we we don't, nobody longs for the day when they could, well, maybe, maybe some, some some tobacco addicts do. But by and large, nobody longs for those days. I think the same would be true for phones.
0: Very interesting. You know, the the wording in uh, in this bill I- is interesting because it leads off with you know it's a ban on cellular voice, but when you dig down into it a little further, it actually means all voice calls, and of course that includes voice over IP. So the term mobile communications device, you know, says the law, means any portable wireless telecommunications equipment utilized for the transmission or reception of voice data. So that's everything, Um, cellular and, and voice over IP. And, of course, the latter being relevant these days because now we have broadband connectivity in aircraft and there are a number of solutions out there that can support voice over IP. Um, I've been uh, of various minds about this topic through the years. Um, One of my concerns in the past was that the the FCC – I mean, this is – they're formalizing something that's already been in place here with this law. No voice calls, but they're actually – Really, haven't been voice calls really, anyways, in the cabin um, because the FCC disallowed in flight cellular. Um, so that never really took off, although it did take off a little bit in other parts of the world, including in the Middle East and on some European carriers. But I've been in kind of two minds on this issue because I don't, on one hand, I, I have not wanted to see technology stymied. Um, but on the other hand, of course, the passenger experience is so important. So it's interesting now that it's formalized. Um, and uh, you know I have to say in recent years I've done a lot of train travel and I've had the misfortune of sitting beside passengers and near passengers who want to broadcast the their conversation to the <laughs> entire you know uh, train and um, it's been uh, something that I find, huge distraction and and quite annoying so when I saw this I thought you know when it comes right down to it from a passenger experience standpoint you're right people don't want anybody else yelling into a phone and and if you're you know and if you have if you're in flight and you have a certain amount of noise in flight then does that mean that the voice is elevated even further in order to be able to be heard sure um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting to see that. I wanted to get your thoughts on the privatization of ATC not happening, though. Um, I know that there's a, a, a lot of people celebrating that aspect today. <laughs> yes. Oh,
1: yes. Uh, there, there are great numbers of, uh, of folks who think that ATC in the United States works really well as it is. Uh, maybe we have the best air traffic control system in the world. Uh, but some people think that... It would be advantageous to privatize. Now, some people say that, well, it's not really privatization, but to hand over all of the assets to uh, an entity that would manage air traffic control. Uh, but I don't know. I think the risks are too great. I don't think it's well thought out. It's uh, just based on the notion that, well, private industry could handle it better than the government because private industry does better at these things than the government. Well, <laughs> not <laughs> Not always. So I think um, I think it will come back. The one argument that is also sometimes made is that with the failure of Congress to frequently reauthorize the FAA with all these continuing resolutions, that putting it in the hands of a private company would take away the the issue of the FAA or of the air traffic control uh, function not having funding and all of that. But, hey, we've got a five-year FAA reauthorization now, so that argument is kind of moot at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I think, in in a past conversation, Max, you kind of making the case, for kind of like, what problem was that going to so- – you know, what problem right. were they solving? And I don't think that they made an effective argument as to – but, but also on the flip side, you know, I have a very recent example of where private industry uh, doing a little bit better than government, and that was trying to find the copy of the FAA reauthorization law online. And it was actually a private uh, company's website that led me to the bill, uh, you know, before the government actually uploaded it in its entirety um, online. So I kind of thought, I like how there's a checks and balances (laughs) (laughs) in place. Uh, You know, there's a a to and fro, a push and pull that has to happen uh, to keep, I think, both sides uh, on their game. But in any case...
1: (laughs) Well, Mary, aviation expert and blogger Cranky Flyer, he reports that American Airlines is limiting reaccommodation options for travelers when things go wrong. So American has created this policy, it's got some allowable exceptions, for reaccommodation during irregular operations. Now, depending on the duration of the delay, the flyer's status... Customers could be placed in a uh, partner airline only or maybe on a non-partner airline, but coach customers with no status have the least options. So, Mary, I think having no policy is uh, is not a good state of affairs uh, right. because it can... It can seem arbitrary and unfair. Two travelers in the same circumstances could receive easily different accommodations. But on the other hand, an overly specific policy can lack, well, compassion for the situation that's at hand. And oftentimes, you know, each situation is different. So what do you think, Mary? Are are you uh, looking forward to uh, the changes that
0: may come about? Yeah, i got to say I'm not looking forward to them. You know, it's funny. Cranky states in his post that the impact here is mostly limited to non-elite domestic coach travelers who would be better off if they could fly Delta or United to their destination in the event that they need reaccommodation. And he notes, but that's still a big enough group for me to bother writing about. (laughs) (laughs) Like, good on you there, Cranky. And it's a big enough group for us to worry about at Runway Girl Network as well. And so what's interesting is I kind of think that the reality is that the industry has – as we've as we've noted earlier you know they failed to regulate themselves on the seat size issue and in failing to self-regulate on on other aspects of the passenger experience could they ultimately prompt legislation mm. the flip side of this however is It also seems as if regulators are content for these types of uh, protocols to be left to the discretion of the airlines. So again, for instance, a provision that could have curbed airline fees was cut from FAA reauthorization legislation. And so in this sense, it seems like the free market is being allowed to reign. And I don't know if regulators will rein in carriers that don't reaccommodate travelers on other airlines unless perhaps there's a major disruption and thousands of people are stranded and complaints come and you know then change occurs Moreover, some of these legislators find themselves in such a situation themselves, have difficulty being reaccommodated, and suddenly feel like they need to invoke some level of change. And, and we do believe that that had something to do with why legislators moved on the seat size issue, and that they actually were starting to get a bit of a squeeze themselves flying home from D.C., um, and wonder if that didn't color some of their views. So I you know I I I wonder how far airlines can push it and, and in this regard as a passenger, I think that this is the wrong move for American Airlines. I think that this is a ma- meaningful group of people. There there are still passengers out there that are not elite, that are not regular flyers, that actually aren't educated on, you know, the, effectively even the ticket that they're buying. And I guess the onus increasingly is on them to understand what they're getting exactly uh, when they buy this ticket. But um, I do wonder if, if, if it goes too far, if it won't, you know, push mm. push regulation.
1: Yeah, it very well could. But uh, my impression here, my reaction to this is that uh, American seems to favor flyers with status. And yeah. I, I get that. But yeah. a customer is a customer. And a customer with no status today could be a future customer with a lot of status, depending on their experience with the airline. Yeah. So does it make sense for American to stratify customers for accommodations in situations that are outside the control of the customer I don't know i I think I lean more towards the, the treat every customer as equally important, regardless at least in this case, regardless of their uh their, you know their status uh, with the airline. but I know that's sort of counter to the way most Western companies think.
0: Well, I mean, and it's interesting though. It's also it also kind of begs the question of, you know, can can we not empower these frontline employees to make some decisions that make sense? Uh, you know, yeah. if we start making things too uh, difficult, confining for the frontline employee, it makes it difficult for that uh, employee to to remedy situations outside of the designated lines that have been drawn for that individual. And so, you know, we saw it even say, for example, with uh, uh, the leggings gate situation at United Airlines, where, you know, two (laughs) young girls were denied travel and they were on a course of pass and everything else. Um, But, you know, that's the type of situation where you would think, A frontline employee should be able to ascertain this is the right course of action for this particular situation and have some flexibility and have uh, be empowered to make some of those decisions. And I guess it worries me that when the lines are drawn too stringently that you're not able to do that and then ultimately not able to offer a good passenger experience. But like with everything, Max, you know, sometimes it is it's going to come down to passengers getting loud, (laughs) passengers being mobile and social and vocal. Uh, in, in order to ensure that some of this stuff doesn't slip too far down the line into to passenger experience fail, hashtag mm-hmm. PAXX fail situations. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, we're rapidly coming to a close, and I want to thank our listeners and to our sponsors, the Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. Remember, you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on Apple and Google Podcasts. And be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at Runway Girl. And remember to use the PAXX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. And it absolutely is going to color our conversations going forward in the future.
1: All right. Well, Mary, I'm going to go check on the kitty on the porch and see if he's still there. But we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PAXX podcast.
0: Take care, everyone.